So, Richard, we're here. We're here. Stage so, door cast, number one. Indeed. And uh, there's quite a lot to get through today. And we did have quite a good running order at one point. And then you said to me on Sunday or Monday, you said, we've got to talk about Eurovision. So let's talk about Eurovision first. Get it out of the way because <laughs> it is the elephant in the room. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's been like that for the last few years, though, hasn't it? I mean, people have said it's sort of Brexit and all of that. But, I, you know, I don't know what it is. I, I think... Uh, you were performing out of love with our songs, to be it honest. It wasn't the most inspiring song in the world, was it? No, I, I was I was looking at my scorecard. Yes, I did have a scorecard. I'd not heard the song before the competition on Saturday, and I wrote by it a little tedious, but not bad. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, it's slightly confusing. I am slightly confused about it, to be honest, because I had heard it before Saturday only because of my work in another place where I had earlier sight of it mm -hmm. and uh, it seemed to go all right on the night we saw it and it was okay and um but on the day it was deadly dull I think it was you know it was pleasant enough but among all of those other things that Eurovision does so well you know there were some mad songs there were some bad songs and you know this year there were some great songs to be honest and I think amongst all of that it just got a bit lost he performed it well but yeah I I just thought it it just got a, a little bit lost to be honest it has to be said as well he was virtually the last person out which isn't a help i think in that situation no i mean also i found out subsequently that the song was written by um two swedes one of whom was the swedish singer uh, of the swedish song um and a canadian uh so you know who also wrote a, a, a co-wrote another couple of the songs for other countries so it's all a bit of a, a of a mishmash really and i think you really got to go back to the song coming from the country that it's portraying, really. I, I, I think, you know, there must be some songwriters here that can write a British song, don't you think? Well, yeah, there certainly used to be. Um, yeah. uh, they even wanted to do it. Maybe now they don't because they don't want to be associated with what they think is a uh, a bit of a, I don't know, a, a bit of a lost cause. And another um, thing that another thing that sort of irks me about it is that it, although they call it the Eurovision Song Contest, they never now introduce the songs and the writers. They they never really mention the writers of the songs, to be honest. And so it becomes all about the performance, and um, it really doesn't become it really doesn't come across as a song contest anymore. It's uh, and you know you, you look at those Australians at those polls. I mean, really, it was. Um, uh, it was it was a great gimmick, but if you took the polls away, what have you got? You've got a fairly sort of odd song, really, um, in structure, um, which I don't think would have done as well as it did if they hadn't been up a pole swinging about. And it also, uh, the thing about that performance was that the uh, the audience saw a lot less of that than we did because it had augmented video added to the top, which Absolutely. meant that, that uh, I don't think... Um, they got really the same sort of thing as we did at all. No. Um, what did you make of the whole thing? Well, I've got to be honest. We went out to the pictures and we came back about song 12 of the, the 26, weren't there, I think? Yeah. Uh, so we, we saw the last half and the voting. I always think the voting is the most instructive for me because 
it's the most enjoyable bit for me. I just sit there with a couple of glasses of wine and just enjoy that. <laughs> but the best song for me was Spain. Yes. By by a country mile, to be honest. I didn't understand Iceland's entry at all. It just no. seemed to me completely ill-judged. Um, yes, yeah, Spain for me. And, of course, interestingly, Spain was in Spanish. Uh, they've yeah. done it in their own language. A lot of people, a lot of the northern European countries now and the, and the sort of... Um, the recently ex-Soviet Union block seemed to do it in English, which I, I sort of understand because English has always been a big language for them. Uh, but I'm not sure it, it always works. No, I mean, I, I, I really like Spain, um, but I did think Australia would win uh, yeah. just because of the spectacle of the performance. And um, I was thinking about this, and I, I sort of had an idea, I'd, you know, because the, I know you said just now that you like the scoring. I find the scoring... Bizarre. I mean, totally bizarre. Uh, and that's not just a recent thing. It always has been, of course. And they've tried various ways of, you know, getting an audience, uh, you know, call-in vote added to the to the judges' scores and all of that. And um, I, I think the way they did it on Saturday was um, it's quite cruel, actually, going going from the from the the lowest up and adding the phone-in score. I think they should make it now. I think they should make it a, a Eurovision festival of song, and only tell you the result of a top three. Well, yeah, that's a good idea. Um, I, I think also we do, as a nation, get a little bit obsessed with the fact that we haven't won for a while. Mm. And in fact, the Netherlands hadn't won since 1975, I think. That's right. So, so it's not, and we've won more recently than that. Um, Ninety-seven, Katrina in the waves. Katrina in the waves. Yeah. So it's not, it's it's not desperate. I don't think no. it's desperate quite yet. But then, of course, Madonna came on, and really, my whole thoughts moved away from the contest completely for a short time. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. That the was, least, that was not the least said about that, the better. No, I mean. <laughs> I'll I'll excuse anyone singing off key. I mean that can happen to everyone. God, it's happened to me enough times as well. Um, you know, you can have a bad night, but whoever came up with that staging really needs yeah, to have I, their head examined. I don't really know what it was all about, to be honest. And they kept saying it was a closed rehearsal and all of that, but you know, it seemed to be closed to even the camera people and the producers because they didn't seem to know where no. they were looking and what they were supposed to be looking at, to be honest. Um, yeah, I think I don't think it was a highlight of her career, actually. Um, well, let's draw a veil over Eurovision. <laughs> I think I think we'll come back to it another time and uh, perhaps next year. Yeah, I, do, um, I do think they should think about not um, not having all of the countries listed, though. I think they should maybe do the top five or top three or something yeah, like that. Yeah, one last thought, and this is just purely with me sort of observing it from a kind of TV production kind of environment, and that is that the last few years, because they've had such a an identical setup, really, it, it, could, have, it could have been the same show last year. The, the settings, the way in which it was produced was almost identical yeah you know if, if it wasn't for the little postcard films showing you parts of israel you wouldn't have known that you you could have been anywhere really you could have been in a warehouse in the east end um I thought, were <laughs> it was what it felt like wasn't they it? just cleared the moon landing set away <laughs> yeah, yeah oh no no let's let's not go down that rat that rat okay. hole without uh <laughs> fake moon landings let's just stay the right side of that one for the moment okay right Next on my list is Man of La Mancha. Now, you went to see it a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. and 
I think it's fair to say before you went to see it, there was some, not so much between you and me, but there were some discussions to whether it would be quite as good as people thought it would be. So what was your view? Well, I mean, there's always discussion about how good the E&O uh, spring sort of musical is going to be. They've done this for sort of five years now. And um, usually they're met with a fair amount of sort of suspicion, really, because it, it being an opera house um, and they, they've tried very hard to put good things in there. They had Kismet, they've had Carousel, they've had... Um, Sunset Boulevard and they had chess last year and they've had very good people in them um, and they're sort of met with a bit of um, I've seen them all and they've all been very good but apart from Kismet didn't like that uh, but they've been met by the critics with a bit of a, a sort of strange attitude and this one um, even more so for some reason I don't know why it hasn't had one single good review uh, they've all been pretty terrible to be honest um, but I loved it I mean, I suppose it helps that I love the show. Um, and I think there was some suspicion about whether Kelsey Grammer, who was playing the lead uh, role, would be up to it because he's not known as a singer. Although I saw him in a musical just last year at the other palace called Big Fish, and he proved then that he could, you know, hold a tune decently. Um, but this is a big role, and it's uh, it's a show that hasn't been done in London professionally for 50 years. And so I think there was a bit of sort of suspicion about it, really. But I loved it. He was very good. He's, he, to coin a phrase, he sung all the right notes in the right order and more than sort of held his own um, in the great song, you know, the big song, The Impossible Dream. Um, and I thought he did really well. The cast were uniformly good, the production values were great, and for me, one of the highlights always of these musicals is to see the score played, or to hear the score played by the E&O Orchestra, which just makes it sound phenomenal. And Man of La Mancha is a very mixed score, it's got big songs like, uh, you know, The Impossible Dream, and then it goes down to small sort of four guitars uh, to give that sort of gypsy sound in some of the numbers and um, and i loved it uh it's a it's a i know it's a marmite show and i i was in it a few years ago quite a few years ago now and you know a number of the audience just didn't get it because it's a story within a story within a story and it is quite sort of complicated but um they did a, a very good job in my opinion um and you know what? I think part of the problem with, with these musicals is they're charging a lot of money for people to, to go and see them. And if and people just won't take a chance when they've got to spend that amount of money. If they don't know the show, they won't go. And I think all of their musicals have sort of suffered with, with that. I, that's just my personal opinion. No, well, um, it's I'm, interesting you should say that because uh, there's I'm going to have a little... Uh, we've got something coming up about that, about the cost... Yeah. of things generally coming up okay. in a little while. Um, I was just looking at the the ENO website, and in fact, it's running to the 8th of June, so there's still yeah. an opportunity for people to see it. This is probably going to go, this podcast will probably go out uh, by the weekend at the latest, so yeah. anyone listening uh, will get the chance yeah, if they want I, to, then go and see it. I think if you can, if you can, if you can find a, a price that suits you and you like musical theatre, go. It's one of those shows that you should see um, and make up your own mind, really. Yeah. Don't listen to the don't listen to the critics. I think you've made a very fair point. And the other thing I thought um, when I saw the promotion for it 
which was Impossible Dream. That's what they chose to use for the promotional film. Mm. And he sang it brilliantly. And I, okay, I know, you know, he was miming to a pre recorded thing that they'd already done at the Sits Probe or whatever, but it was very, very good. And I yeah. thought, you know what? He can do this. There's no, there's no problems at all with this side uh, of it. And I mean, you know, he's a great actor. I mean, you yeah. look at that and you look at the, the way he played the part and you couldn't really fault it, to be honest. Um, so I would, I would say to people who are, and considering if you can afford to find a ticket that suits your price range, go um, and make up your own mind. Now, the first of our talks about the amateur theatre side, because we, for people who don't know, we both come have a long uh, history in amateur theatre, both separately and together. Um, if you added up the number of shows we've been in, it would probably be far too many. And um, But you went to see Green Room Productions... Mm show last week of seven brides for seven brothers i did what did you think about that i thought it was excellent I, it, you know green room are one of those companies that uh, it doesn't it doesn't really matter what they're doing you know if you're going to go and see their show you're going to be entertained and um seven brides for seven brothers and again i have to admit i'd never seen the stage version uh i've seen the film and it was one of those shows that was a film before it was a stage show uh, so it was really interesting to see. And not many companies, amateur companies, would be able to do it because not only because you need seven brothers, but you also need another six young men playing suitors who are uh, already um, linked with the seven brides. So you need 13 <laughs> young guys um, before you even begin to think about townspeople and all of that sort of thing. And Green Room um, are one of the few companies that have, you know, 13 very talented young guys and seem to be able to keep them show after show after show. And um, it worked really well. I thought it was a bit of a, a, an underwhelming start. It starts with the big song, Bless Your Beautiful Hide, um, which a lot of people probably know. And it's a sort of it's a sort of gentle start rather than a big sort of opening number that you would expect from a lot of shows. But it quickly sort of um, warms up after that into a really likable, very, very tuneful show. There's some really nice songs. Um, and, you know, it's a ridiculous story, really. And uh, <laughs> the, the, the Seven Brothers basically kidnap the Seven Brides. And yeah, it's, it's, it's not particularly uh, politically correct in current <laughs> No, we were, we were talking about that at the inter interval, actually, and decided that because it was a sort of period piece of its time that um, it didn't matter too much. <laughs> I think. No. And they played it in the sort of way that it was always, you know, like Benny Hill, it's always the brothers that get the, the, uh, get, the get laughed at rather than, the, rather than the girls. And so it was okay. And it was a, it was a lovely production. It held together really well. And they had um, a really good special effect of an avalanche, which, um, which really uh, only Green Room could pull off, really. Yes. So um, it was a really good night, and I think they did quite well with it, which is great because it's not a well-known show, and you would maybe think audiences might think twice. But, but again, with Green Room, I think audiences generally know that they're going to be entertained, whatever the show is, so good for them. And, and for those who are not aware of Green Room, uh, it is, of course, Green Room Productions in, um, who perform at the Williams Theatre Potter's Bar. And they are really 
well, I mean, there must be other societies like them around the country, but there will be very few, I should think. There, there are very few. I actually tried to get tickets for that show, and I couldn't get tickets. Wow. Because we could only go on the Friday or the Saturday night, and I couldn't get Saturday night tickets, and the Friday night tickets we couldn't get get uh, two together. So, um, yeah. which would have been fine for me, but I think the good lady wife might have been a bit annoyed. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, side the auditorium. Uh, they're doing 42nd Street. Next. I know, I know. So another, another really difficult show for most companies to attempt, I think, really. And tickets are on sale now. Right. So <laughs> well, it just shows you. And I'm sure in future weeks, in fact, one of my plans for this podcast is to get a regular guest to talk about things. And I think Alistair, who's the chairman of Green Room, would be a really good first guest. But you no, know, they did really well, I'm sure, and uh, they always do. And you know, it's always great to go and see one of their shows because you just know what you're going to get. Well, you know the quality is going to be there, even if you come out not particularly liking the, you know, the piece. You know that they're you're going to see it done in the sort of best light, if you like. So um, you're always going to see um, a good quality production. I now have a little. Going back to your point about the price of tickets, um, yeah. I happened to cross a couple of articles the other day and. One of them was in the Spectator. It was a sort of, uh, it was an opinion piece, really. Uh, but and what it, the headline of it is: London's theatres are falling apart. Audiences are paying extortionate prices to sit in theatres that aren't fit for purpose. And this is written by a, a lady called Natasha Green, and it was it came out yesterday actually. And the point she's making is that that considering the price of some theatre tickets now, and she quoted Hamilton, which obviously is the hot ticket of the moment anyway, um, a VIP reception package of Hamilton, it costs you £274. Mm. Um, and, and obviously, if you take, you know, a, a, a family of four or five to the theatre and you get decent seats, most big musical shows are going to cost you, what, you're going to spend five or £600 probably easily if you want decent seats. And the point she was making is considering that there are still too many theatres where there aren't, the toilets aren't very nice or they're very small or they're not very many of them or they charge like 10 quid a pint for a beer in the interval and all of that sort of thing. And I think she makes a reasonable point that, uh, you know, there is actually a bit of a structural problem between what managements are charging for tickets and, and what they're actually delivering. Mm. Yeah. I, I think you know this is also highlighted again by the ENO. I, it's, I'm not picking on ENO here, but their their next uh, spring musical next year is Hairspray, and um, they've got Michael Ball in it. He was in their Chess last year, and he's coming back to do Hairspray. Tickets are already on sale, and well, I, I don't know the actual the actual price points but the, you know you were talking around 200 pounds for a, a top price ticket for hairspray really and you know if i was somebody who didn't know hairspray and i wanted to take a sort of punt and going to see it would i really want to pay 200 pounds just to have a look i don't know really um probably not even though michael ball is in it i don't think i would um and you know a lot of theaters are now doing this sort of they call it airline sort of pricing where if you buy tickets early you get a slight discount and like surge you know, that, pricing yeah that's right that can be quite good that can be quite good but you've got to you've got to commit to something you know six months down the line or something like that to get to get 
not a huge discount really in, in most cases um and you know the flip side of that though you've got places in london like the charing cross theater where i saw a more uh, Michel Legrand's um, musical, which was beautiful. And, you know, that was 32 quid. Um, yeah. That was the price, you know. Um, and it's a lovely little theatre. Uh, I don't know what, I don't know whether theatres would rather be sort of half empty and charge 200 quid or try and reduce their prices a bit and fill themselves up a bit more. I don't know what's better, really. They've obviously thought about the pricing and and must think it works but it would definitely put me off if i just wanted to go on on spec and see a show i hadn't seen before i mean i haven't seen hamilton i haven't seen Hamilton. no yet. i haven't seen hamilton and no. you know it's not really the prices it, it's just i do resent i think 100 quid is is enough to see a show really um well, I yeah. mean, you know, it's it's two hours of your of your time, isn't it? Two hours twenty, maybe if you're lucky. If it's a long show, it's, so it's um it's a lot per hour. It's a, a fair old whack. It is. I mean, it's, this also yeah. equates actually to what I've been saying recently about Edinburgh. When I first started going to the Edinburgh Fringe, you know, tickets were three, two, three quid, and if there was a show there that you thought, oh, I might just go and have a look at that. You'd pay your two pounds, and if you didn't like it, you know, you've only really lost two pounds. And we're only talking 10, 12 years ago, the first time I went there. Now, you know, one hour shows about 14, 15, maybe 16 pounds. If you, if, and if you see a show that you sort of fancy and you think, well, do I want to pay 16 pounds for that when I'm seeing four shows in a day? You know, it's a lot of money. And mm. I think it sort of equates, doesn't it, you know, to down mm. here, just because it's London, really. Um, or just because it's Hamilton, you sort of just expect it to be extraordinarily expensive, and and that's a shame. Well, we we are hoping to return to Edinburgh this year, which is something that's only just become available for us because uh, I've had some work move around. And and however, as you say, I think we're not going to go up there on spec. Now we'll probably look at what's on, and we'll we'll sort of rather strategically say well we'd like to see this and we'd like to see that and then mm. work out the times that we can get up there to see those shows and i think it's a bit of a shame because you know the the almost the inspiration for this podcast was what happened in edinburgh when we used to go to see a show that was often quite awful yeah and we used to come out and think god we've got to have a drink and have a discussion about this before <laughs> and sort of take the taste away and and that was the magic of edinburgh it was that you went to see a lot of stuff not all of it was brilliant no but some of it was inspirationally good yeah and it's not that you know it's not a case of you can't afford it it's do you want to afford yeah. that, that yeah. much to perhaps be disappointed um on the pro stage and on the edinburgh fringe stage um yeah i don't know what what anyone can do about it or if there is any way to do anything about it really I, do the price now that they've gone that high is that it do they do they stay there or can they never come down i don't know well i kind of think i would like to think it would change because it, it will affect the people that come to see shows and, and actually i was going to dovetail this into another point which was that there was another article that i happened across in the stage this morning actually about a professional actor who is currently in the West End who is earning so little. Well, let's not say earning so little, but his living costs are so high in London that in order to do his job, he can't afford to rent accommodation. 
mm. and that he's actually sleeping under a bridge yeah, on the yeah. Thames. And and you think that's ridiculous. And and yet you know that the, the shows are charging these huge amounts of money for tickets, and it, somehow it doesn't seem to quite equate. That's appalling, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm not trying to be depressive about it, and you know, start the show, start the podcast, episode one, with a lot of depressing news. But um, <laughs> there are a couple of things that have come up in the last couple of weeks. Um, the uh, before we get onto the really good stuff, because our main subject for this evening and our, our big finish, we'll be talking about company. But um, uh, the um, the Les Mis situation as well, because mm. Les Mis is coming out of its current home for four months while they put in a new production and the new production is actually the touring version the new touring version now i haven't seen the touring version i don't know what it's like um i'm not you know going to make a judgment about it but because it's a new production a lot of the existing staff are being laid off because they're not needed anymore it leaves a slightly nasty taste in the mouth when you read the um articles about it because you think have they really done this in quite the right way they've they've said oh we don't like the original show we're going to bring in a different show we're going to close down for four months while we are closed down for four months we're going to put on a a concert version next mm. door with lots of big name stars and this is uh, comes back to the kind of stunt casting thing i'm not suggesting the people that are doing the concert version a stunt casting necessarily well i think they've all been associated with lame yeah. some before haven't they no absolutely it's... but they're they're big pulls they're they're, yeah. they're there for the um the summer season they're there to get all of the um uh sort of people who are visiting london in and they will and they will gladly pay their 150 quid a ticket or whatever it's going to be mm. to go and see that so it'll make a nice big pot of money for the production company and then they'll put this new show in which is different and they been doing that they will have lost quite a few staff as well and start all over again. Mm. And it's just, it's kind of a bit strange. I, I, I don't quite know what I think about it. I, I This thing yeah. about, you know, making shows which appeal to the tourist. And I'm not being snobby. I think that's absolutely fine. But I think sometimes they go a little bit too far out of their way just to make shows that are just aimed at the tourist market. Yeah, I mean, I think Les Mis has been around, what is it, how long now? Is it over 30 years now? I think it is, yeah. I think it is. And I, su I suppose there's there's some argument that you could uh, make to say, well, it does need refreshing in some way, and a way to do that is to bring in a leaner sort of version. Um, and I guess those people who are who are in the show right now, they, they will have been in it for some time, I guess. And, it, you know, they will be used to um, having shows close and being out of work for a while, I guess. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the new show, the new version is going to be like or how reduced it really is. So, but there was a big, do you remember when it moved from the palace to yes. the Queen? There's almost exactly the same situation, really. It was a bigger show at the Palace than it is now. Um, and I think there was a big row with the Musicians' Union about the orchestra being cut down and things like that. So it's it's a similar thing. It's um, Yeah, I don't, don't quite know what they're doing, and I don't know the detail. I don't know any detail about... I haven't read any of these stories about it. I just know that they're closing for four months and then reopening again. 
um, but I didn't actually know that they were cutting it down. Yeah, well, it's it's. Um, I've just checked. It it was it opened on the eighth of October, nineteen eighty five. So what's that? It's um thirty four years. years. Yeah. So it's it's had a it's had a good old run, and as you say, it's already had one big refresh. Uh, and I think it was the first show to start using um sort of um synthesized playback to replace quite big parts of the orchestra. And I think that was the problem, wasn't it? Yeah, I think, I think that was that was definitely from the, the first time round. I, you know, it may all come down to economics again. I, I guess you know when it when it was at the palace, it was costing quite a lot of money with 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 a huge orchestra. Maybe, maybe it's economics again. I, I, mm. I don't know. But you know, a show like that, which is basically sold out every performance, you wouldn't have thought there would be an economic problem, would you? Really? Um, but you don't know what the bottom line is on these West End shows, do you? Really? Well, it'd be very interesting to see the um, the, the actual projections, wouldn't it? I, you know, I mean, my only experience is doing amateur shows, and we all know how desperately difficult it is to make those um, make money. They're, they're, mm. It's really, it's always, it's a, it's almost always a loss leader to some extent. Mm. Um, however, on a, on a positive note, if, mm. so that we can be positive, apparently in 2020 we're going to get a musical version of Back to the Future. Oh, excellent! In the West End, so. You know, that'll be good. Quite how they'll get a DeLorean up to 88 miles an hour on a single stage, I don't know, but... Someone will try. Yeah. So, (laughs) the main event for, I think, both of us over the last couple of months has been company. Yes. Um, uh, I was just blown away by... I managed to see it in the last week of its production. I know you'd seen it twice before, and you saw it on the last night. I saw it three times overall, and... The last night, you know, I went twice with two different people um, early on, and I just, um, it it hit me so hard. I just sort of thought, oh, I wonder if there's tickets for the last night, and I do want to see it again, and just got them. And, um, yeah, it was a fabulous production, wasn't it? I, it I, was amazing. I loved it, I loved it more every time, because it's one of those that, because it was it, it was different from the original, uh, you know, with the gender swapping and all of that, and the production, of course, you know, the the more you go, the more you see. Obviously, you take in a certain amount the first time you go. But I found myself looking at things that I hadn't seen the first couple of times on the last night. And, of course, the last night was a huge event. I mean, Sondheim was there um, in, in the uh, in the in, in the in the theatre. And it was just um, a roller coaster, really, of... Uh, of standing ovations almost yes. every song. Well, I think we went. I think we went on the Thursday night, so we went the, the, the um, two before the end, uh, right. three before the end, I guess. Um, and the lady who's sitting on our left, we we're in the front row of the Royal Circle. The lady who's sitting on our left, who was an Australian but had flown from New York that afternoon, had come straight from Heathrow to be in the theatre. Said to me, "I may well fall asleep." <laughs> but but she didn't. Um, and on the other side, there was a lady who was probably the world's biggest Patti LuPone fan, who gave every one of her numbers a standing ovation uh, every time, uh, including at the end. But but every single number that she sang, including ones that she was just in the ensemble, really. Um, so it was a kind of a slightly surreal experience for us. But my wife, Jackie, she came out. And she just loved it. We got the um, downloaded the music and then she put it on shuffle play and she's been playing it in the car for about three, four or five weeks now. 
Um, <laughs> whenever she goes on the long trip, she just puts company on. Um, I think I think the the acid test of that version and that production was. Uh, you know, over the years, I must have seen Company, the old version, many, many times. And if Company was being put on in the West End in the old version, I'd probably go and see it, but I wouldn't put myself out to go and see it. And and the first time I went to see this version, I didn't really know what to expect. Um, and it was like, wow, this is how it's almost like this is how the show should have been from the start, because it just worked so well. Yeah, it really is. Um, and, and it does feel like it was always like that. Mm. I mean, I, I can't like I, I was trying to rack my brains to think when I last saw Company. And, do you know, it, it could well have been one of those cut down versions in Edinburgh mm. um, or it could have been an amateur company, um, you know, about 20, 25 years ago. Right. It, was, it was certainly a while back. Um, and I sort of had really forgotten the, the story to a large extent i certainly wasn't you know so clued up on it that i was going to say oh i don't like that i don't like that because that's different um but it just felt so right it felt like this was exactly how it always was well and also it felt really relevant to today yeah. and i mean yeah. let's not forget this was a show that was written in 1970 mm. uh, or somewhere around there i think it was 1970 yeah, no, I think actually it was 1970. and um just with those few little changes, you know, the gender swaps and the the gay wedding couple, and and uh, but and interestingly, if you know the score, very little had changed in the music at all. I mean, just a few he's to she's and she's to he's and things like that. Um, you know, very they didn't change great lumps of the score or great bits of the script. It was all there, just slightly tweaked, and it just just worked didn't it yeah and the, and in fact uh, i was reading uh, there's quite in in the sondheim magazine which came out uh, a few weeks ago there was quite a large i mean there's about 12 or 15 pages about it because obviously it's a big thing for them uh, but one of the things that came out of that is that the the gay wedding was quite a late change they didn't mm. originally have that and they were racking their brains as to try and work out how to do it and they they emailed Stephen Sondheim and said, we're not sure you're going to like this idea. <laughs> and he emailed back and said, I love it. Yeah. And then rewrote the bits that needed to be rewritten to make it work. So, um, Well, I think that's the key, isn't it? They got him on board quite early with yeah. the concept. And um, he was involved, apparently, all the way through. Ironically, the night before um, the last company performance, which I saw, I, I went to um, the National Theatre to see... Sondheim being interviewed and um, they didn't say much about company but he did say that uh, he had been many years ago uh, somebody had approached him to uh, do a, a different sort of version and he said no and I can't remember what, what, what the version was but he said no and um, he said that the vision that they had for this version just sort of hit him as being right for the time you know and that's why he said yes and uh, yeah I, I, th I think there was a I think it was, was about about five or six years ago I think someone wanted to do a version with a gay couple in the leads right and and, and for, for whatever reason um, oh, I was about 2010 I'm just speed reading this and and he didn't feel it worked and he asked them to stop doing it because he didn't think it was uh, getting anywhere right um 
but they did do some work on it. But I mean, one thing is is Marianne Elliott, the the director of this show, and uh, with her partner, um, their new production company, she really is the hottest uh, ticket in town now, isn't she? She's got so many things mm. that she's been so attached to recently. That, well, um, I think it was also a bit of a risk, wasn't it? I mean, I. I don't know if it made a huge amount of money or anything, but artistically, it was the show to see at, uh, for a couple of months in London, definitely. Absolutely. Now, I'm going to ask you, now, interesting, and, and this is a really good point that you've just brought up, a couple of months. Um, when I went to see it, when we came back from seeing it, I then spent a couple of days just researching it because I was so enamoured with it and I just wanted to know as much about it as I could find. And I went back and I found a lot of the original sort of press release stuff and the kind of preview stuff because they'd originally workshopped it two or three years ago right? with, with, with um, Rosalie Craig doing the part. So, I mean, she'd been sort of in the frame for this for quite a long time. But they also very cleverly, they did a very early launch. I mean, they launched it about 18 months ago. They put it out there quite early on. Yeah. And I think they gave a lot of people a chance to think about it and get used to the idea before, you know, and, 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 and not so, so not having a snap judgment about what it was going to be like. Yeah. And I thought that was a really clever thing to do as well. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, there's not a lot you can say about it other than it was. I think it was absolutely brilliant. Um, it it's probably the best musical I've seen in the West End for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And um, I hope that it comes back. I hope that they take that production and do something with it. Well, they... I mean, they are going to take it to America, aren't they? I, I think. Um... Oh right. Well, that would be. I I didn't know that, so that's news to me. But that's that's great news if they are going to do. Well, that. on the, uh, after the last night, I I seem to remember reading that it was uh, it was on the cards that it was going to go there, but um, and I, I imagine you know there's a, there's a lot of Sondheim fans in in the US who would want to see it, aren't there? And yeah. So I guess um, it could do a a run there, but. You know, you've got to be careful with sometimes things. You know, from the amateur theatre as well. You don't; they don't often sell very well. Um, and if you if you if you confine them to a limited run in the West End, it probably it probably just about you know just about had the right amount of time, really. Um, and it will probably come back in a year or two or three for a do while. Do you think? Do you think that is? I was looking at this. I, I went back. I can't remember. I did tr try and look it up earlier and got waylaid doing something else. I saw the original production of Follies in 1987 mm -hmm. in the West End. And I don't remember how long that ran, but I don't feel it ran for that long even then. I don't think it was sort of like, it wasn't a multi-year thing, I'm sure. I think it was a, a relatively short run. No, uh, I, mean, I, think it... with Sun, I think with Sondheim, the thing is, his shows are, are, are much more popular now, all of them, than they were when they were first written. I mean, I think he said that himself, you know? He had some real disasters yeah. uh, in, in the early days. And I think you, it may be, you know, a lot of people said it's because he was ahead of his time. Well, that may be the case. Um, but maybe, you know, people have just just found out about um, the style has caught up, you know, uh, to, to Sondheim. So um, I think, yeah, Follies um, wasn't very, very successful, I don't think. I think it's been much more successful latterly. 
And certainly, the, you know, it's been at the National for the last two years, isn't it? Two years running. Well, they've had two little bursts of it, haven't they? Like With the short sort of runs again, though. Yeah. I think I think the short run is the thing that... Do you, uh, think is... that, do you think that, that, Rich, do you think that is because you need to have more emotional uh, attachment to the show? You need to invest more in it to gain something out of it? We, and I'm, I'm not being disrespectful to an audience, but... You could go and see a show like um, Singing in the Rain, for example, and you can just enjoy, or, or even 42nd Street, and you can just enjoy the spectacle. You can just enjoy the singing and the dancing, and mm. you don't have to do a great deal of sort of thinking about the story. Whereas no. I think with Sondheim, if you don't think about the story, you're missing quite a lot. Yeah, no, you have to listen and you have to concentrate and you have to you have to follow it. That's true. Um, and... I, yeah, I mean, maybe that's the case. I don't know. I mean, certainly the Follies uh, this time was two hours and 40, I think it was, something like that, without any, there was no interval. I know, uh, that, that seemed to me to be a mistake, but... It, well, yeah, but it didn't seem like a huge amount of time, to be honest. I think, because, again, because I know the show very well and I, and, and I really like it, I think you just get, if you, if you let yourself, you can just let yourself get swept up in it and, yeah. you know, taken along by it and um yeah i think you need to you need to engage a bit more with Sondheim than you do with some other things possibly well that was a really good way of finishing this first episode mm. because it was it's a really positive way it was a great show so what have you got planned for the forthcoming week well on friday i'm going to see legally blonde which is at uh, the Stratford Circus, and it's by um, Trinity Laban College. And I like going to see these uh, shows, which are done by the um, musical theatre colleges, and the students do do you know end of term or end of year shows. Arts Education will do really good ones, and Royal Academy of Music. So it's one of them, Legally Blonde. That's all I've got this week. Uh, I've got nothing theatrical this week, but I have got a couple of TV engagements to sort out. So um, um, I shall enjoy doing those and uh, and uh, probably editing this, trying to get it out for the weekend. Excellent. Um, well, thank you, Richard, for, for this first episode. I hope it's gone well. I'm sure once I've um, got the golden scissors on it, it will be. Um, I should just remind our listeners that if they want to talk to us, if they want to tell us about their own shows perhaps get a free plug or give us some views or like the show that they can contact us by emailing mail at stagedoorcast.co.uk and uh, I should just say thank you and good night yes goodbye <laughs>